Today is going to be kind of a unique message. Uh, we're going to have a number of slides, and I know sometimes people might get a little frustrated with that because I'm going to be clicking through. But uh, I just want to tell you in advance, uh, I, I read for you Luke 19, and that is going to be our main text. But the other references that I have up here from Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, and, and John are the cross-references. So if you, if you list those even right now, if you're taking notes, then later on as I'm kind of referencing back to those things and we make some comparisons, uh, you won't have to worry about that, okay? So as we just consider... Uh, what we're going to be looking at as we look at the triumphal entry, um, it's, it's going to be kind of a deep dive into this uh, event, so to speak, and into what took place. Again, we're going to be looking at lots of scripture, and I'd like you to kind of just keep your finger in Luke 19 the entire time. I may not be directly referencing back to it, but we're going to be working through it, okay? So, you know, if, if you're kind of, well, where is he? It's, it's only a, a few verses, not a lot of verses there. So you can kind of just follow your way along. Um, we'll be doing it sometimes, but not all the time. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, I left those references up. That was pretty much my introduction. But what we're going to start with is the events leading to the triumphal entry. And we kind of need to think through the context of this, which is why we're going to look at the different elements of this first. And what we're, part of what we're going to do is we're going to um, take, again, Luke 19 as, as, our, as our part of it, but we're going to insert details from the other Gospels. And so that's kind of how we're going to approach this, which is why we have a number of slides coming together here, all right? So the first thing that we're going to do as we look at the events to the triumphal entry, leading to the triumphal entry, we're going to talk about the synoptic gospels. And the first thing that we're going to be looking at there is events. The events began in Bethany. The events began in Bethany. And the first aspect to that comes from Luke 19. And I said we weren't going to turn there, but we're here because this is really something that um, solidifies you know, where we're at. This is some pre-material here, I think, kind of, sort of. It says, when, we had, when he had said he went, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he came near Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olives, that he sent two of his disciples. So we know where he was located when this took place. Um, all four Gospels say that he drew near to Jerusalem, specifically Bethpage and Bethany, um, near the Mount of Olives. Um, Jesus then um, uh, sent two of his disciples to retrieve a donkey. He requested them to go get this donkey. All of the Gospels describe this, but there are some differences. And just as we think about this, donkeys were a common work animal or mode of transportation. So this wasn't really anything unusual if somebody wanted to get from point A to point B, all right? But there's a couple of differences that I want us to see here. The first one is in Matthew 21, verses 2 and 3. And it says, saying to them, this is the same type of instructions that he was given, but again, these different gospels are going to have different aspects to this. Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And then we see the rest of the instructions there. So in Matthew, he includes the mother donkey came with the colt. Uh, they would have naturally gone together as the colt would have wanted to follow the mother. Okay, 
But this is the only gospel that says that both animals came. But then we see in in, uh, uh, Mark 11, and then also considering Luke, that it says you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. So both Mark and Luke give us this little detail that the animal had never been ridden on before. So this is significant for a couple of reasons, right? First is, this was an untrained colt. Yet Jesus rode on one of the most stubborn and ordinary ordinary animals, right? A donkey with no trouble. That probably drew some attention to him. It drew some attention to the event itself. Here he is, you know, kind of saddles up, so to speak. They, they put the coats on him. He gets on this beast of burden, younger beast of burden, that had never been ridden before, and he just quietly walks on into Jerusalem. <laughs> this would have been an unusual sight. Now, the second thing, at times, livestock that never saw work were set aside for special purposes. We don't have a lot of instances of this, but I, I have two of them. And I think it makes some sense. We'll talk, about, we'll talk through these a little bit. Deuteronomy 21, verses 3 and 4 says this, And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer which has not been worked and which has not pulled with, with a yoke. And I'm going to explain this, by the way. The elders of that city will bring the heifer down to a valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. You say, wow, that's kind of a graphic thing. What, what is this talking about? This was the law that it was instituted. It was a ceremony if a body of a murder victim was found near a town, but no one knew who committed the crime. So here we have this unsolved crime. Someone's just near a town, and they've obviously been killed. So the elders of the town would take a young heifer that never saw work outside of the town and they would break its neck. It was not a blood sacrifice, but it was still kind of a sacrificial thing to do. It was a sacrifice of a valuable animal to kind of offset the death of this person that they they don't know what happened. And here's the other thing. They would wash their hands over the animal and in essence declaring and actually, they would declare that they were innocent of the murder. So this was just a lawful procedure that took place for them to, what we would say, wash their hands of the crime. They would declare, I'm not guilty. No one in this town is guilty. It was the, it was the elders of the town that did this. And so when they did this procedure, which I'm sure was very unusual, It was with an animal that had never worked, but a very valuable one, all right? So that's one instance. We have another instance that comes from 1 Samuel. (laughs) This is uh, when the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant. It says, now therefore make a new cart. So this is now the Philistines telling their people, like their religious leaders saying, this is what you have to do. Because if you remember, they were being ravaged by God because they had taken the Ark of the Covenant. Now, now, therefore, make a new cart, take two milk cows, which have never been yoked. So these are adult animals, but they've never done any labor. And hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home. <laughs> okay, a little bit of a distraction, right? 
away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him. Notice it's not returning to Israel, it's returning to God, right? As a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. So again, the Philistines had uh, sent the stolen Ark of the Covenant back to Israel on a cart pulled by two milk cows that had never been hitched to a yoke. And again, it's just symbolic of the fact that they had not done any work and they were set aside for, in essence, what was like a sacred thing. So the colt, never being ridden, may have been highlighted, uh, may have highlighted its sacred duty of carrying King Jesus into the city. It had never done any other work. This is the first thing that it was going to do, and it was going to carry the King of Kings into the city. All right? So that's, those, are, those are probabilities there. Now, the other thing that we, that we see that took place is many of the crowds spread their coats and palm branches before Christ. We're not going to talk so much about the coats, the cloaks, but we are going to talk a little bit about the branches, okay? Uh, but again, they, they were spread on the animals, the coats were, and then the coats and the branches were spread before the animal as, as a ceremonial way of, of just welcoming Jesus. But there's some interesting things as we think about this. Luke is the only one who actually doesn't mention tree branches. He only mentions coats. So the accounts of Matthew and Mark are slightly different. And so I want you to see these. It says here that, uh, and others cut branches from the trees. And then in Mark 11, that was, that was Matthew 21, Mark, Mark 11, it says, others cut down leafy branches from the trees. We have one reference that might shed some light on this as a display of joyful celebration. It is associated with the Feast of first fruits, the celebration of God's provision at the beginning of the harvest season. So we're going to look at that. We looked at that a while back um, in, in something else we were looking at in Colossians. But Leviticus 23, verses 39 through 41 say this, Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day there shall be a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees. And by the way, the fruit of beautiful trees, some people translate that as the, the branches that might have fruit on it, you know. So it's still talking about branches, probably. So uh, fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. So many times these are called, these, these, these feast days are called holy convocations. The Lord talks about keeping it and different things like that. This particular one, the significant, strong emphasis is on celebration. And somehow, apparently, part of this was that you're, you're, you're clipping some of these branches off and you're, you're waving them, right? It's, it's part of the celebration. It would be like us you know, wearing our favorite gear to a football game or something like that. You know, it, it, was, it was part of the celebration, right? Um, so that's what's taking place here. And again, I think some of those things were representative, the trees representative of the harvest, if you see the descriptions. So it kind of then fits back into the narratives that we see in the Gospels that it just talks about branches and things, 
but then also palm branches. Because what do we think of normally? We think of the palm branches, right? That's in the Gospel of John. So this may have been a spontaneous expression of joy that they had borrowed from this yearly feast of celebration. That's the only thing that I can see that would connect it to something else that they would have normally done. And so I really think there's a strong connection here because, I mean, did you ever think, why did they just like start cutting branches off trees? You know what I mean? And I think it goes back to what they did on a yearly basis that was specifically for celebration. All right? I hope that's helpful. Okay, so are we on the same page here? Moving forward? All right. The next one. The crowd shouts praises to Christ. The crowd shouts praises to Christ. Matthew chapter 21 uh, tells us, Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, so, so here we have in Matthew, the son of David specifically mentioned. Well, Matthew, his theme is Christ the King. So here we have a reference to Jesus coming back, right, all the way back to David, right, his, in lineage, his father. He's in the line of David. We know that. And so here he is being extolled, being, being uh, praised as the king coming, David's son, right? Mark 11, verses 9 and 10 say this, And then those who went before and those who followed cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. It's a little more muted and veiled, and, and some people think that that's because Mark's um, uh, reference point is Christ the servant. But it's still there, right? We still see that he declares Jesus as being King David's heir, establishing his kingdom. Now, both Matthew and Mark say that people shouted Hosanna. And Hosanna means, save us, please. Or please save us. And the order doesn't matter so much. And it, it became an expression of praise as we see it shouted here, okay? But I want us to go back to the, to the Old Testament where this comes from. And so we're going to look at Psalm 118. If you'll turn there, please. Psalm 118. I'm going to read a portion of this psalm for you. Um, it's, it's 10 or 11 verses, but it, it, it really gives us the context of why these people are saying what they're saying. Psalm 118, beginning in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Kind of need to put that back in its context, right? Verse 25. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord. 
and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Now, I want to highlight verse 25. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Now, let's look at this in the Hebrew and then the transliteration that goes into what we would call the Greek. Yasha Anna. Hosanna. That word is right here. And so if you look in verse 25 in the English, save now I pray. I'm requesting, please save. That's Hosanna. All right? And so this is what they were shouting. Now, all four Gospels quote also verse 26, which says this. Save now, I pray, O Lord. That's verse 25. I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that too comes back from Psalm 118. So again, this, this is a psalm of salvation. This is a psalm of, of God and what he's going to do. This is a psalm exalting who the Lord is and the salvation he's going to bring. And they're saying these things as Jesus is entering the city of Jerusalem. That's pretty cool, isn't it? All right. So let's continue here. One more slide here, Luke 19, verses 37 through 38. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Again, we see that this takes elements from that. So it's Matthew and Mark go back to uh, Psalm 118. But also the Luke passage goes to Psalm 118. The next thing we want to see here is this, is that Jesus accepted worship. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it's something that's important to note. Verses 39 and 40 out of Luke again. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So what's Jesus saying here? They're, they're doing it right. And if you stop their mouths, the rocks themselves are going to praise me for who I am. Now, let's just very quickly, I don't want to make this sound like I'm rushing, but I mean, just briefly understand that we have seen in the Gospels several times that Jesus receives worship. There are times when the Pharisees or, or whoever the audience is completely understand that he is claiming to be God and this is extremely troubling to them because either he is or he's a blasphemer. There's no in-between. It's either death penalty or we worship him. And right here Jesus is saying, you should be worshiping me. All right. So now what we're going to do is that we're going to look at the triumphal ent entry in the Gospel of John. What we're going to do is we're going to place the events of the Gospel of John over what we have drawn from the Synoptic Gospels. 
we will begin with some unique information leading up to the triumphal entry. All right. So, so far, we've looked at these different elements and we've seen, you know, okay, we have this, this young donkey. What, what's, what's the significance there? What's the significance of all these branches? What, you know, we've looked at those different things. We saw the importance of the fact that they not only worshipped him and even where that's coming from and why they're using those scriptures, but then also the fact that he is worthy of that worship. He is God. He is the son of David. He is the king. He's all of those things that they have been ascribing to him. And as they're saying, Lord, please save us, that is both a plea and that is also an act of worship itself. That is an act of exaltation. It's praise. So now, again, we overlay what John has here. So the first element that we, we have is that John shares that Jesus returned to the home of um, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany. Now, again, you've got to remember, we're, we're now pre the, the entry, okay? We're pre-triumphal entry here. This is a little bit of information that goes beforehand. So what I want us to do is I want us to read, uh, starting in John chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 1 and go down through the middle of verse 12. Now, get that, and if you, again, if you need some help there, Pew page, Pew Bible page, 932. Your pews don't have pages, but the Pew Bible page, 932. So, so John chapter 12, starting in verse 1 is where we're going to be. But while we're reading that, I want you to see this map here that I have. And, it, and basically, Jesus is coming from the Jericho area and then slides over to Bethany, Bethpage, Mount of Olives. And you can see where Jerusalem is in relation to all of this. So this is where Jesus is going, right? So now let me read for you, beginning in verse 1 of John 12. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, we're not going to get into a lot of details as far as how much time took place or whatever, but it was a past event. He's returning, okay? There they made him a supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Because he cared so much about the poor. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. Hmm. Nice man. Then Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Then a great many of the Jews knew that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but, they came, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest took counsel that they might also put Lazarus to death, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. It's always a great solution. Let's just eliminate the competition, right? I mean, there's this wonderful miracle. Uh, we need to get rid of that, right? Him. And, and then verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast 
when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches, and so on. All right? So it's critical to keep in mind the Jewish observance of days. Most likely, Jesus arrived with his disciples late Friday evening at the beginning of the Saturday Sabbath observance. Six days before the Friday observance of Passover. The feast or banquet in honor of Jesus would have been held Saturday evening at about six or after, after the conclusion of the Sabbath. Okay? Sundown to sundown. All right? So this is the time frame that we're talking about. So John chapter 12 Starting then at verse 12, going through verse 15, says this, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Here's what the palm tree references, obviously. And cried out, very similar thing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's Colt. So in the daytime after the banquet, Jesus entered Jerusalem, which would be our Sunday. Now, a couple of things that we now logistically have to understand that matters to every gospel account, because it's all the same account, but the other ones don't necessarily talk about it. First of all, they don't talk about Lazarus. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But check this out. The multitude came from the feast for Jesus. Did you see that? In verse 12, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard about Jesus going into Jerusalem. So this multitude that we're talking about came from the feast. This is what's really fun. The crowd, the multitude were followers of Christ. John 12, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. You see where we're going here? These, these are people that had gathered. They had been part of this feast. Now they're transitioning over and they're Witnessing Jesus going into Jerusalem. Luke says this, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, we already saw this verse, but look what it says, Rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that these should keep, if these should keep silent, if these disciples of mine should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. There's a difference between this multitude and the multitude that would cry out for his crucifixion. These are the followers of Jesus. They are welcoming their king. They believe. They have seen the signs and wonders. They have heard his words. They believe that he is the Christ. And as a result of that, the whole scene caused a great stir. 
We start with John chapter 12 with this one, down toward the end of the passage that we read, uh, saw here. We're adding to verses 17 and 18. It says, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you, that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Folks, this is what we call hyperbole. Okay? Had the world gone after Jesus? No. But it was a big group. And they were angry about this. They've tried. They've tried to stifle him. They've tried to shut him down. It hasn't worked. How can it work? They're working against God. As a matter of fact, one of them even said that. If this is of God, we're not going to be able to stop this. Right? Remember that? Okay, so here we have the setting. His disciples are crying out, the king has come. Save us, please. And the Pharisees say, everything we've done, we can't stop this. And then Matthew, it says this, that all the city was moved. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So the multitude said, who were the multitudes? Who was this big group? Who was this crowd? They were his disciples. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Right? <laughs> kind of changes our perspective on things a little bit, doesn't it? So what I want to talk about now, that was the bulk of our message. I want to talk about the significance of the triumphal entry. The significance of the triumphal entry. So just from a general historical perspective, a general historical background, a triumphal entry was for the celebration of a military victory or a dignitary coming into town uh, or, or something like that. And, and it was many times a big deal. You know, we're talking huge fanfare and lots of things taking place and it was what we would call today a parade. I mean, it was big. Uh, in our country, and by the way, I don't have a lot of time to, to, to try to explain all of that, but in our country, we do this too. And we have done it in the past. You think of victory in Europe Day or victory over Japan Day, right? We had huge celebrations when, when we, we were commemorating uh, the troops coming home and different things like that. Ticker tape parades. Like we, we remember the black and white uh, and sometimes even color at that point, you know, a, a video of all this taking place, these, these major historical things. And then how about sports championships? Not that we know anything about that in our state, okay? But I'm just saying, uh, sports championships, you know, Super Bowls and winning, you know, the, the hockey Stanley Cup and all these other things, what do they do? They set aside a day and they have a parade. They have, in essence, a triumphal entry. They have triumphed, okay? And so it's, ah, you know. Now, they're not cutting down trees. They're burning buildings. No, just kidding. But so they celebrate it. But you get the idea. So, so that's, that's kind of culturally what we're talking about. This would have been something, as far as just the feel, the scene, would have been something similar to a, a, a triumphal Roman legion coming back into the city. Except that, it doesn't look the same, does it? The feel, the celebration part was the same. But here we have 
this single man sitting on the colt of a donkey. Just humbly walking into the city. One of the things that Jesus did was he fulfilled prophecies. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Ah, interesting. I saved this, right? I saved this for a little bit of punch. This is the significance of it. All of these things are being in real time now, being fulfilled. This was part of a larger messianic prophecy of God saving his people in Zechariah. This message contains the core characteristics of the Messiah. He was just or righteous and lowly or humble. Remember how he talked about himself? He said, I'm meek and lowly. I'm I'm a humble guy. That's who I am. That is my character. How about when he said, why are you doing this to me? Tell me what wrong I have done. Why do you want to stone me? Tell me how I have sinned. And the Pharisees who at the time were going to chuck rocks at him, and stoning was taking large rocks, throwing at somebody until they died. And they said, it's not for any sin, normal sin. It's not for some transgression. It's because you're claiming to be God. That's why they were going to kill him. So Jesus comes as a righteous man, completely, totally. No one ever could compare to the God-man Jesus Christ. But he also came, even though he was God, he came humbly. And he was the ultimate king of Israel, yes, who was bringing salvation. Wow. Now, Jesus also established, sorry, I'll wait for that in a second, (laughs) established, um, said that he was um, about the kingdom of God. All right? So what I want to do is I want to look at several verses where Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. See, Zechariah 9.9 was really the foundation for the kingdom. So as he's establishing his kingdom, the kingdom of God, His kingdom, the same, as he's doing that, what does he say about it? Let's go through several passages. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel, good news, of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Isn't that interesting how that kind of goes back and forth there? The good news is the kingdom, and the kingdom is the good news. What's the good news? That the Messiah, the chosen one, has come. John 3, 3 through 5. Jesus answered and said to him, By the way, who was this? Any quick guesses? Nicodemus, yes. Most assuredly, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see 
the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time when his mother's womb would be born? And Jesus answered, and I'm sure he was not snickering, right? He was being respectful. <laughs> Most assuredly, you hear the confidence here? Do you hear the, the de de defining way that Jesus is talking to this learned man? He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, natural birth, and the Spirit, supernatural birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 and 15. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter in. How does a little child receive anything? Right? I remember as a little kid, someone telling me, hey, I'll give you like this really, really nice shiny quarter for that nasty old green piece of paper that has a five on it. I didn't know any better. I had faith in that person. Yeah, I'll take that shiny piece of metal. How about when we tell a child, hey, come on, jump in the pool, I'll catch you. Think about the faith that that takes, man. It's, you know what I mean? That's the kind of faith. We're saying, God, you're going to catch my very soul. You're going to catch me. You're going to save me because of what you did for me. Luke 12, 29 and 32. And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Who does he give the kingdom to? His little flock. His children. And John 18, verses 36 and 37. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, now again, this was after this point, but I'm just giving you a reference to Christ's view of his kingdom. Are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And he bore witness of the truth to his death. So that's the significance of Christ and his coming and his now entering as the king of the Jews. All right. Let's talk then about the beginning of the Passion Week. 
This event sets off, sets off the, the events of the Passion Week, as we call it sometimes. On one hand, we have the sovereign hand of God guiding every event, fulfilling every prophecy related to this time frame, and God fulfilling his eternal plan of salvation. We just talked about the kingdom. The kingdom is the gospel. The gospel is the kingdom. The kingdom is the good news. The kingdom is Christ coming and giving us salvation. But what is God's plan? Well, let's look at what John says about that. As we consider the beginning of the Passion Week and how, what this is setting off, what is God's plan? Because we're talking about God's now sovereign plan, what he wants to accomplish. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, we've already saw the use of the word world before. All right? It's a general term. If this were true, explicitly stating the world, as in every person ever born, then this is a universalist statement that all would be saved. It's not the case. Exactly. But this says that he, that the world might be saved. Okay? So we have to compare Scripture to Scripture, but this also tells us God's plan in John chapter 5, verses 36 through 40. But I have a greater witness than John's, talking about John the Baptist, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. Well, how do you do that? Prophecies, declaring that he was his son when he was baptized, Right? And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So he basically says, kind of to go back to uh, a different part of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? The scriptures are telling you that you don't want to listen. And that's a specific audience. But then look at what he says here in John 6, verses 37 and 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent. Remember, we're talking about God's plan. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. John chapter 12, verses 44 through 46. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. 
All right? Now, Jesus isn't saying you don't believe in me at all. What he's saying is, ultimately, you're believing in God the Father and his plan. Because he says later on that you still have to believe in him. Right? What he's saying is, it's not just about me. It is my Father and I. We're doing this together. Right? That's the plan. And then we're going to sneak in a 1 John passage. Because it's still the same author, even though we're not back in the Gospels. And 1 John 4.14 says this, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. That's the plan. So we take God's plan as he's beginning the Passion Week, as he's beginning what we call sometimes Holy Week, as Jesus is entering the, the, um, the city, and literally at the end of this, he's going to be exiting the tomb. That's what we'll be looking at next week. As all this transpires in between, we need to look at the other hand of things. We have the motivations and actions of the crowd down to the individual, right? This other multitude down to every individual. We have Roman leaders, regional officials, Jewish leaders, the soldiers, all of them. They're not puppets. They're doing their thing. All of these people and many more in the nameless crowd, all playing their part to work out God's sovereign plan. The same plan that God prophesied hundreds and sometimes in some cases thousands of years before Christ came to the earth. How, how can we question the sovereignty of God? How can we possibly look at all that unfolded and say, oh, isn't that interesting how all that happened? And yet all these people were doing their own wills too. That, that is the amazing mystery. That we may never know, but we're certainly not going to know it on this side of heaven. That God laid all this out. And people did their thing. But their thing ultimately was his thing. (laughs) So as we conclude today, really, folks, my biggest takeaway for us to understand is this, is that Christ was entering in character. Christ was entering as who he was as the Messiah. The city of Jerusalem to begin his kingdom as king. Both David's son and God's son. God himself, God in the flesh, and the back of a donkey. with his followers cheering him on as he would go into the city and days later give his life. Hosanna. Lord, save, please. I have an assignment for you. We have two mics in the back and they promised me there would be no mic drop while this takes place. Okay? Um... They're real mics. Um, I have a guide for the Passion Week that these guys are going to pass out for you. So they're going to be doing that right now. 
As they pass this out, I want to encourage you to read through this this week. Now, I will tell you, caveat, I did what I could. There are different views on when things took place. I would say don't get hung up on that as much. Just use this as a guide to read through through the week. It starts today if you want to review the gospel accounts of this amazing triumphal entry of King Jesus. And then it goes all the way through the rest of the week. Even on Sunday morning, you can read about the resurrection. All right? So, so that's, that's what I have for you. Some days are a little bit fuller, so to speak. Now, some groups say that nothing happened on Wednesday. Others say that there's a carryover. So what I did was there's so much going on on Tuesday, I made Wednesday a catch day. So Tuesday, Wednesday is mostly Tuesday, but part of Wednesday, if that makes sense to you. But it's on the sheet. It's on the sheet. All right. I just didn't want you to have like a huge amount to read one day and then nothing to read the next day when there's a lot there. Okay. It's not going to affect anything. But folks, as we conclude, this is what I want you to understand. Christ the King came at his birth. Christ the King has always existed. He is God. But when he came at his birth, he became the God-man who was the only one who could take away our sins. And and listen, I just need to tell you, if you don't know him as your Savior today, right? We've already seen testimony in these passages. I'm just going to be blunt. You have no hope. Our only hope, come with the faith of a child. That's how you receive the kingdom. The kingdom is the gospel and the gospel is the kingdom. The good news of who Jesus is. So as we've talked about this, I just want to encourage you, as a believer, exalt the name of Christ. So I, I know we've, we've taken a lot of time doing this. I thank you for your patience. I know we, we pushed a lot of verses in this, but folks, I, I just wanted the scriptures to speak. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Much more important than what I have to say. A little explanation along the way, but we really looked at this event purely from a scriptural standpoint. And, and, I, and I know it's kind of more of a technical thing, but in a lot of ways it changes how we look at this celebration when we remember that the crowds were different at his triumphal entry as opposed to his crucifixion. Because I'll just confess, for many, many years I was always like, well, I mean, yeah, you're doing that now, but these same people, they're going to be crying out for his crucifixion. They probably weren't the same people. And our study revealed that. And in some ways, it's kind of like, oh, good. These are the good guys. They, they remain good guys. They testified of him even when he went, they went into the city. Who is this? What's going on? This, this, this is the one they prophesied about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the one promise that we have is that for every life that you have redeemed, you will have a triumphal entry. You will enter their heart and life and you will change them. You will make them alive. And it is an important theological fact 
But it's not something that any of us know for certain as far as who is going to become a follower of yours. So, Father, we want to follow your example. Jesus himself, he gave a call to all people, anybody, to come. Knowing full well that you needed to do the work. So, Lord, how can we be any different? Protect us from looking at someone, thinking about a situation, and evaluating whether or not they're worthy of the gospel, whether or not we should say something, whether or not they will even listen, and understand that as you give opportunity and as we testify about you, it's your business. Lord, we know that Paul did his best sometimes to persuade. But he wrote pretty extensively about the fact that you're the one who does the saving. And so rather than that being a hindrance, I pray, Lord, that that gives us freedom. That that takes away any barrier that we have or any even responsibility that we might feel of of saving somebody because we can't. But that it frees us up to simply speak of the one who does the saving. Of the king of the kingdom. Of the subject of the good news. And may we express with our words and with a life to back it up that we are your followers. Lord, we have seen things. We have experienced things in our own lives. We know the truth. If we were there on that day when you entered Jerusalem, we would be waving the branches. We would be expressing, save us, please. Father, we thank you for the gift of faith. And I pray, Lord, that if you're moving in someone's heart even today, that they would respond. In Jesus' name, amen.